I'm Lindsay Morgan, and you're listening to Talking Policy. I mean, there's a debate in the literature. Are democracies more or less stable? Was de Tocqueville right when he said that democracies need mercurial foreign policies? And so our goal was to examine this really systematically using you know, all this data. And the conclusion is that no, they are not more mercurial, right? They are at least as stable and possibly more. The U.S. has experienced striking changes in leadership in recent years. From Obama to Trump to Biden, Americans have elected presidents with vastly different political commitments and bases of support. And we might expect this to translate into different policies, which would mean that our democracy produces volatility, both for Americans and for the rest of the world. But do different leaders lead to this kind of instability. A new book by Michaela Mattis suggests that democracy's foreign policies are actually more stable than is generally assumed. Michaela is an affiliate with IGCC, which produces this podcast, and an associate professor of political science at UC Berkeley. And her book with Ashley Leeds is called Domestic Interests, Democracy, and foreign policy change. Michaela, thanks for being with us on Talking Policy. Thank you. My pleasure. So tell us what this book is about in a nutshell, and why did you and Ashley decide to write this book now? Ashley and I uh, are interested in this book basically in understanding when foreign policy change is more or less likely, especially in the context of the new leader coming uh, to office. And even if you look at the news uh, just in the last week, uh, we saw this article in the New York Times about the new Filipino president, President Marcos, taking a more confrontational stance uh, towards China, right? He had his Coast Guard cut this rope that was uh, delimiting the uh, Chinese, what, what the Chinese claim as their ocean. Um, and so that was sort of heralded as like a shift from Duterte, right? So we see that in the news a couple of weeks ago, uh, the new Fijian um, president also uh, took a more confrontational stance by canceling the police cooperation agreement. And then on the other hand, I think in recent times, we've also seen more articles now about the Italian prime minister, uh, Maloney, who when she came to office a year ago, there were all these expectations that she would you know, drastically change Italian foreign policy would move away from the EU and the alignment with the US, be more pro-Russia, potentially uh, less supportive of Ukraine. And actually, none of that has happened. I mean, she pretty much, uh, you know, was making uh, very similar policies to her predecessor. And so when we see these transitions, often there's a lot of speculations about, will this leader lead similar or different foreign policies? So this is what we are trying to understand in, in our work, is do they lead similar or different foreign policies? And so what we do is basically develop a, a theory of domestically motivated foreign policy change that looks both at the drivers of change and the constraints of, of change. And so the drivers of change are these leadership changes that bring to power new leaders that depend on different societal groups for support than the predecessor. Those different societal groups have different interests and preferences, and therefore we may expect more change under those kinds of leader transitions. At the same time, though, whether these leaders can pursue change also depends on the domestic institutional context, where really um, democracies, we argue, are more stable um, for a variety of reasons than non-democracies. That's the, the core idea. And it's interesting that you're looking at domestic 
political dynamics because on on one level, when we think about foreign policy, it, it would be normal to think about it as being driven by international factors, you know, changes in the international environment. But what you're saying is that these domestic political dynamics also play a role in shaping those foreign policies. That's right. I mean, by no means are we suggesting that the international context doesn't matter. It absolutely does. In fact, the international context can shape the preferences and interests of individuals domestically too, right? Even if the domestic constant the context is stable and there's no major shocks, say like the Ukraine war, you could still see foreign policy change as a result of basically parochial interests that elevate both domestic but also international policy. There's an assumption baked into this book that stability in foreign policy approaches is a good thing and that volatility is probably less good. First, am I right in that assumption? And why would stability be a good thing? Yeah, yes, uh, you are right. <laughs> that, that's very much a, a core assumption here. And I think there is also a clear argument why stability is so important in leading successful foreign policies. And it's both really important for international cooperation, but also for dealing with your adversaries, right? So uh, take the context of cooperation. If you want to cooperate uh, with another country or other countries, then that requires policy adjustments on your behalf and on everyone's behalf. Those are costly, right? You're now doing things you wouldn't otherwise have done. Like you're shifting your production to a different kind of good and trade. You are, um, you know, training your uh, your troops uh, with other forces in a way that you wouldn't have done it yourself. You maybe even buying different kinds of weapon systems. All of these things are costly. So the only reason you would want to do this and bear these costs is if you expect that the gains from cooperation are lasting, right? That there is a long-term flow of uh, stream of benefits that can actually uh, really pay off the, the cost that you have invested in cooperation. So essentially, this ability to uh, make credible long-term commitments is crucial for cooperation because otherwise, why undertake it? And so there it's very clear, but also when you deal with your adversaries, I mean, if you, you know, uh, uh, impose a sanction on a country for, say, human rights violation, I don't take Myanmar, then you want that country to believe that sanction isn't just going away with the next leader. You need them to believe that it will be in place long and that they they will feel the pain for a long time because only that will convince them to change their policy. So this um, ability to credibly commit to sort of long-term consistency in policy, I think is, is crucial for really all aspects of successful foreign policy. To answer the question of whether foreign policy is consistent or volatile from leader to leader, different leader to different leader. You and your co-author, of course, could not look at every conceivable thing happening in foreign policy. You had to choose a subset of things to look at. Can you tell us what those four things are and why you chose them? So uh, we look at the abrogation of uh, military alliances, also at uh, changes in the country's um, voting patterns at the United Nations General Assembly uh, from one year to the next, the termination of economic sanctions once they've been threatened or imposed, and then also trade between pairs of states and particular changes in imports between these pairs of states. And so the idea why we chose these four quite different areas is that we were trying to vary three um, important variables. Uh, one of them is the extent to which the issues underlying cooperation really uh, divide society, right? Like do different segments of the population really have different preferences over these issues and how salient 
are these issues, right? It's very clear that trade is highly salient, right? There are clearly those who benefit and those who, who lose from trade deals. And it's much, much less salient with regard to the United Nations General Assembly voting, right? Where people don't care about most votes. The second dimension that we wanted to vary is the extent to which um, a leader can actually exert control over that area of foreign policy. Right. So, and again, in UNGA voting, they have, I mean, that's an executive decision. While something like making an alliance uh, very often, you know, can require a treaty or uh, certainly some kind of legislative approval. And then the third dimension is the extent to which there is international uh, institutional constraints. Right. So, again, alliances can be treaties. So they are legally binding under international law, while how you vote at the UNGA is not. Right. And then within sanctions and trade, it varies. Some uh, trade is uh, in the context of trade agreements, which are binding, others is maybe not. And then uh, sanctions can sometimes also be international efforts and even potentially binding if they're under the UN. And so the idea was to vary these things so we would get the pretty broad set of foreign policies um, and see whether our conclusions hold in this broader set. And you looked at data from all countries with a population of more than 500,000 between 1919 and 2018, which is a lot. This must have been a lot of work. <laughs> and this was a lot of work, many, many years of work, many, many research assistants helping with it. It's years of the making. There was an NSF grant that we were thankful for. So yeah, it's long term. All right. So what did you find? Again, kind of in a nutshell, what were, what were the big sort of eye-opening lessons from this big body of work? So uh, we tested two core hypotheses, right? One is this idea that it is when a new leader comes to power that has a different societal supporting coalition than the predecessor that we should see more foreign policy change. And so we find support for that across all four areas that we look at. So a little footnote here that with sanctions, it's a bit tricky because sanctions actually don't show much uh, change when you include the U.S. because U.S. apparently is a very stable sanctioner. But if you ex drop the U.S. Uh, there, it, it, we do find this uh, result also that um, when there are these changes in source of leader support, that's when foreign policy is more likely to change. And then the second core hypothesis is, of course, that this pattern should be stronger for non-democracies than for democracies. And so here again, uh, we find support for this. And in particular, we find that democracies are at least as stable in their foreign policy as non-democracies and often more stable. And so there's one big exception to that, uh, which is trade. On trade, we actually find that democracies also uh, are more likely to shift their foreign policies um, in response to these changes in leadership um, where the new leader has different domestic supporters than the predecessor. So you find that the constituencies can lead them to desire to make foreign policy changes, but that in democracies, their need to cooperate with other actors and institutions can act as a constraint, even when their bases might be pushing for change and sort of drive that stability. Is that right? Uh, yes, but I think that's only part of the argument, actually. So in democracies, the logic is twofold, actually. There are two mechanisms that we um, emphasize. One is this policymaking constraint, one that we were uh, just discussing. But the other one is what we call a selection mechanism, which is basically this idea that in a, uh, you know, in any country, leaders depend on the support of some set of the population in order to attain power and stay in power. And so how large that coalition has to be that supports this leader varies by country, right? It's typically very large in democracies. In a majoritarian 
system like US, it's that's 50% of the vote, right? But even elementary system, it's pretty large. But then if you go to, um, uh, say, an oligarchy, it's only like 5% of the population and military regimes are, are ones that are personalist type regimes, they're a much smaller group. And so our idea is that wherever leaders have a large supporting coalition, then the likelihood of overlap is much higher between two successive leaders, right? Because they both need large groups with more overlap means greater likelihood of wanting even to continue the same policies. Also being drawn to the centrist, you know, the moderate policies of the median voter. Also means if you have more uh, like broader coalitions with diverse interests, then it's harder to agree on change, right? So there are a variety of things that make it less likely that a leader in even wants to change foreign policy. But then on top of that, if uh, he or wants to change, they are, have trouble actually executing this because in democracies, there are typically these other actors, these constraining actors that may be controlled by those outside of the leader supporting coalition that can inhibit change or make change more difficult. So that would be quite obviously the legislature. Uh, what we emphasize, I think it doesn't get emphasis enough, the bureaucracy, right? The deep state uh, can play a role here. I just recently read a, a piece about how in the Philippines, um, when President Duterte came to power, he very much announced that he wants to redirect away from the U.S. and, you know, closer to China and sort of distance himself from this, like, America's longest alliance. And it turns out that it didn't actually manifest itself. And part of the explanation for that is that is the bureaucracy in the Philippines. I mean, they're so, in the, the alliance is so ingrained, right, that that that's just how things operate. And you can see this in, you know, in other contexts too, that the bureaucracy may not be able to refuse something the leader does, but it can certainly like make it uh, slow walk it or put in other kinds of obstacles. And then the final one is courts, of uh, course, are also a potentially important constraining actor, right? We saw that with, in the US, the court struck down the, the Muslim ban, for instance, in South Africa, the their Supreme Court decided that um, South Africa can't just leave the ICC, the International Criminal Court, they need a, uh, like a parliamentary mandate for that. And that actually derailed those plans and their members of the ICC to, to today. Let's talk about how this has been playing out in the US. We've gone through some really very different presidents over the last decade or so, from Obama to Trump, Trump to Biden, and now this big question mark kind of looming over us. And I think with Trump, uh, many of us are accustomed to thinking about him and his presidency as a time of, of really drastic breaks from his predecessor, from Obama. And there are lots of maybe examples that we could talk about of that. Speaking of trade, his first day in office, he pulled out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, one of Obama's signature initiatives. So can you tell us a little bit about, one, are there ways that he was actually more consistent than is generally assumed? How does what you found here kind of jive with what we understand about Trump as like this big break from Obama? Right. So, I mean, President Trump, I think, is clearly seen as the breaker of things, right? So yeah, yeah, yeah. There is climate accord. There's obviously the Iran nuclear deal. There's the open skies agreement. There's the withdrawal from the World Health Organization, right? There's the much greater closeness to Russia, but the, um, you know, trade war with China. So, like, yeah, so many things. But then I think important, like, taking a step back from, from a lot of uh, those things is that there is also variation that we see in the kinds of foreign policy change or issues in which there was change and where there wasn't change, right? So if we go to our areas of interest uh, in, in our manuscript, we actually see 
that it plays out kind of along, like in similar ways as we would have thought based on our arguments. So in particular, look at the alliances, right? President Trump always railed against uh, NATO, for instance, uh, but he never left NATO, right? The U.S. never left NATO under him. And then that's in part the result of constraining actors in Congress who were very uh, symbolically and overwhelmingly uh, voted in support of NATO. And then the sanctions, yeah, we see some uh, change on sanctions, right? He uh, reimposed some of the sanctions President Obama had lifted on Cuba, but then when he wanted to remove sanctions on Russia, Congress didn't allow him to do that. So that was also a, a constraining actor here. And then uh, the one area where there's the most change, arguably, was on trade, right? Where he, uh, of course, negotiated the USMCA to replace NAFTA, and then also the initiation of the trade war with China. And so in the sense that trade is the area where we might see the most change, even in democracies, that certainly does fit this particular, uh, I mean, the, what we observed under Trump does fit this. Turning to Biden, his agenda when he was elected was anchored in a strong rejection of all things Trump. And he he has, in fact, restored some of the things that had been damaged during the Trump years. So, for example, he's taken a stronger stand against Putin. He has shored up some of the alliances that had frayed and, and taken a stronger rhetorical commitment to multilateralism. And yet there are many consistencies between Trump and Biden. And chief among them is our very muscular approach to China. There was a recent article in Politico that said to think about Biden's foreign policy as a more globally minded, multilateralist take on Trump's America first policy. What do you think? Well, yeah, I mean, so everybody expected there would be major change because Trump was so different but from Obama, but Trump wasn't actually that different either. And so it's maybe not surprising that Biden isn't super different from uh, from uh, Trump either. So I would say that, yeah, there's um, maybe to some surprising a lot of consistency. I think China as a threat, right, and sort of the main challenger is like very clear in, in President Biden's continuation of, of President Trump's ideas and President Biden's policy, including also the trade um, uh, war there and in general protectionism he has continued. He has also withdrawn the troops that uh, from Afghanistan that President Trump started, right? Um, I think President Trump's border and immigration policies are also much closer to Trump than maybe people may have expected. And so we are seeing a lot of continuity uh, there. And like the, of course, the Abraham Accords, right? He has continued to support them and try to build on them. Um, and so then you have to ask sort of where have been the areas of change? And I think there are two big areas here. One is rhetorical, like you mentioned this in your question. And so U.S. emphasis on democracy, right? The summit for democracy is different. Uh, multilateralism and uh, cooperating uh, together, right? So that rhetoric is very different, but that's also right words uh, where it, you, you don't run afoul constraining actors as easily. And in fact, where some of this was, uh, President Biden might have tried to put this into practice, he did run into constraining actors, right? So there were attempts to revive the Iran nuclear deal, but one of the reasons it failed is that Iran wanted some kind of guarantee that uh, a successor, potentially another uh, President uh, Trump, and, um, you know, as, as a successor of Biden, would not uh, derail it once again, which is, of course, something that President Biden cannot offer, right, because he has no way to get that through Congress. And so, uh, right, so constraining actors have made it difficult to really 
uh, enact some, go beyond words on some of these uh, commitments. The other big area of change is, of course, Russia. And that, though, is very much a function of an international shock, right, with Russia attacking Ukraine, which just has changed the international environment and required a response. I mean, I think that President Biden was going to be harder on Russia, certainly than President Trump, but to the level that we've seen as a function of an international shock. I mean, his his hands kind of are tied in, in re- reacting strongly to this. So, so I, I would say then the other kind of interesting point here is that kind of does not uh, correspond to uh, some of the things we've uh, seen is that trade is actually a lot, and President Biden is a lot more uh, sort of, there's there's much less change on trade policy, right? Like it's very consistent with President Trump, which I attribute in part to that they're competing for the same source of societal support, right? They both a certain kind of, you know, blue collar worker. And so that would make sense in our argument too. There's just, there is, that that is actually something driving that consistency potentially. I want to ask you about the Ukraine-Russia shock, but especially in the context of Germany, which is where you're from. What role has Russia's invasion of Ukraine played in Germany's foreign policy? The current chancellor, Olaf Scholz, is a social democrat. Um, he was uh, elected and well, he came to power in December 2021. And so his government is a coalition of social democrats, green and liberals, uh, German liberals. And they replaced the government of uh, Angela Merkel, who was in a coalition with uh, the Christian, like she's CDU's Christian Democrat, in a coalition with the social democrats. So one thing from our argument, Ashley and I would say is that that's already like we don't expect so much change there because the, the social democrats were part of the coalition of Merkel, right? And they are the core partner to, uh, in the in, in the Schweiz government, right? So there's an overlap here between sources of societal support. So not a lot of changes expected there. And yes, when the government came to office, they had sort of negotiated in their coalition agreement some new things like this, uh, what they were going to call this value-based foreign policy, which is especially a brainchild of the Greens. I don't think we saw a lot of if it actually manifests itself because things like, you know, not providing or selling weapons to Saudi Arabia under this idea immediately fell to the wayside and Germany still made that deal, which is probably the result of business interests, which are also in the uh, coalition. So we didn't really see a ton of change. And then suddenly there is the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine, right, which completely changes the international environment for Europe and Germany in particular. I think Americans sometimes don't understand how close to home this feels uh, for and so it's like it's a it's major uh, change in the international environment. Um, what we saw then, of course, in in response to this was this big speech, right? This uh, by the Chancellor Scholz, who talked about um, well, it's called, like he, he calls it in German, it's Zeitenwende, which basically is turning point or epochal change, sort of like there's a major change that we will go through. Now, what he meant by that is that. Germany would supply weapons to Ukraine and help Ukraine, which it hadn't done before, right? It wouldn't supply weapons to any country in active conflict. Um, and then also would finally increase its uh, defense budget to 2%, which of course is something Americans, not just President Trump, but previous presidents have also demanded uh, of Germany. And so that's like, that was a major shift. As much as that speech, everybody said, oh, it's like watershed moment and it's uh, this new thing. It has had an effect, but I also would say it's slower and maybe less total than it would initially have seen, which does align with our argument. So, I mean, Germany now is the second biggest uh, supplier of weapons to Ukraine, right after the US. 
But also, it took kind of a long time to get there. And then on the um, defense budget, yes, um, immediately 100 billion euro were made available for renovating the US military, which, by the way, is not in a good shape. <laughs> so it, it is useful there. And in fact, the German government has now actually retreated from this plan of committing 2% every year and basically said they will uh, commit it over five-year periods, right? Sort of that they will, like, basically, it will average out to 2% uh, over five years. Turning back to your question, so that international event absolutely changes policy, right? And it has in Germany. But we are also seeing some of the, like, elements of the domestic story that uh, that we have in our book, which is the Social Democrats' base is, tends to be a bit, little bit more pro-Russian, or it has in the past, maybe as today. And also there are constraints um, uh, among, like, that come from other parts of the system that make it hard to really change policy. So what you're describing is so interesting, which is that in democracies, there is stability in foreign policy for, for all the various reasons that you've talked about. And even in the case of Germany, where there's this huge shock because of the invasion of Ukraine, there is a big change, but then there's also this rebounding to a place of stability again, where you come back to prior commitments, not entirely, but to a certain degree, which is just really interesting. I wanna to shift to, to look ahead. Over the last couple of years, we have seen in the US and in lots of other countries, growing polarization and an erosion of norms around democracy. And I'm curious, how you think these factors will play out over the next election here in the US. Do you think that this trend that you're talking about in your book about stability, even when leaders change, do you think that stability will continue in this environment of polarization and democratic backsliding? And if a Republican wins in the US presidential election in 2024, do you think things will continue along this stable track or do you think things might change? Right. Yeah. So uh, Ashley and I were <laughs> concerned about this too, right? Because we find that democracies tend to be more stable over the period we look. But the question is, will this trend hold in the future? And there are you know, powerful shifts underway that might challenge this, right? So as you pointed out, polarization and democratic backsliding. And there's reason to believe that both of these developments, which often also coincide, right, that they, they could undermine the ability of democracies to be so stable and so beneficially stable in their foreign policy. And so with regard to polarization, right, the worry here is that if the electorate becomes so polarized, then there is no more median voter, right? There are no centrist forces that uh, pull towards a moderate policy. And, you know, that can lead to greater change from one uh, administration to the next. And also there's, I, I think, particular concerning is maybe effective polarization, where it becomes not even about your interests, right? It's about undoing what the other side has done just because it is them who did it. And that could lead to even more foreign policy change that is, doesn't even correspond to interests of groups. So, right, there's a, a lot of push there. And then on the side, the constraint side here, the worry, of course, is that, um, like, if on one hand, yes, their leaders could be more constrained, right, because they can't do anything because the other side is opposed to everything. But the effect this has also uh, had is that leaders then seek a way out, right, and try to maneuver around those constraints. And so there's a recently an interesting article in a, in a law review, uh, a, law, a law review piece that discussed about the rights of non-binding agreements, right? And so 
Uh, and we're seeing this, you know, the Paris Climate Accord was non-binding agreement, the Iran nuclear accord uh, was uh, non-binding. If leaders do more of those, of course, then those are also easily overturned by the next administration. And so, yeah, we can we could expect to see more change. And then with democratic backsliding, the story is this. I mean, basically, democracies become more like non-democracies, right? So you exclude voters, you shrink the uh, the size of the supporting coalition needed, right? Which creates problems kind of I've discussed in the mechanism earlier. And you're also weakening the potential constraining actors. All of this also can undermine stability. So. So that's the question, I mean, how how these, these developments will unfold in the future, right? I mean, I think they both have a potential to undermine things um, quite a bit. And then I think you asked also about the 2024. And oh, what- yes. This is what everyone wants to know. What's going to happen, Michaela? Tell us. <laughs> yeah, I think... I think we all, I don't know, like international relations scholars are not great at predictions. <laughs> so it's always very like hard and, and, and kind of stressful to do. Um, I guess I guess the thing that I would say is that probably we should see quite a bit of continuity on certainly China, right? I mean, that, that is, I think that's given by the international environment. Like the, China is a challenger. The main challenger US has to be worried about. And I think that, you know, that will just constrain anybody who's in power in 2024. Uh, and I also think like on trade, right? There's a lot of agreement uh, on more protectionist policies probably among the, the people that presidential candidates will be competing for. So we should expect continuity there. The big one, of course, is, is Russia and Ukraine, right? And, um, you know, I'm going to say it also depends on who pre- the president is, right? Among the Republican candidates, there are differences. Admittedly, in our work, Ashley and I don't go into, like, we basically treat each Republican the same, right? They have the same supporter coalitions, the same. But that's, of course, an abstraction, right? The real world is more complicated. They are different. It matters if it's a Trump or Ramaswamy versus or Haley, right? And... Still, though, I would expect that there would be some constraint imposed on them, too. So there are like the, the Democratic Party is supportive of Ukraine generally, like and, and are the, as are the voters and Republicans are pretty divided. But some of the really powerful Republican the elites in Congress, especially in the Senate, are very staunch supporters of Ukraine. Right. So any president who wants to disrupt this uh, support for Ukraine and, and potentially lift sanctions against Russia also has potential constraining actors that they will have to deal with. I'm going to say if I was Ukraine, I would be a bit worried about this. But there are also potentially some things that could mitigate against extreme change here. Uh, Michaela Mattis, it's been such a pleasure having you on Talking Policy. Yeah, thank you. My pleasure. Thanks for being with us at IGCC and have a great week.